UFOs, and and, uh, and I like to think that there might be UFOs when I was a kid and that kind of stuff. Of course, they're scary as much as they are kind of fun and that kind of stuff to think about. And you see little movies and sci-fi, and I always thought that was kind of cool. And I remember this had to be, I think it was like, like 1977, and, and uh, I was in the backyard, so I was a young kid, a little, kid, little guy. Uh, and I was, I was, I think, 10 years old. And I, uh, I was out in the backyard, and I was by myself. You know how you get that feeling like something's watching you? Have you ever had that, that weird feeling like something's watching me? So I'm looking around, I can't see anything, and like kind of scary, it's kind of dark out. And I look up in the sky, and I see it, guys, a UFO. I see a UFO. And it's moving across the back of, of our house, and it's got flipping lights that are flipping like this around this circular object in the sky. And I thought, I couldn't wait, you know, because I thought if I ever saw one, I'd be so excited. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I panicked. I panicked. I thought it was the end of the world. I thought it was bad. The demons are coming from heaven. They come and get me. Because I was, I was raised in the church, too. You ain't supposed to believe in that stuff. Come on, you know, and all this stuff. And, and, uh, and so I ran inside and told my mom, my mom oh, my God, there's a UFO in the backyard. So they run out of the house and um, go in the backyard. And it, it was a UFO to me. It was an unidentified flying object. But they saw it with, more, <laughs> with better eyes. And it was one of those blimps that you can hire. And it's got a message board that goes around like this. Come on, like eat at Joe's for seven ninety nine or something like that, whatever. I, I don't know what it was. And, and they, they thought it was pretty funny, but I didn't think it was funny at all. Come on. I was convinced the UFOs were coming to get us, right? So that was kind of like my close encounter. And I, I've always been fascinated by UFOs. I've actually said, I think, I, I think I'm going to do um, uh, something on, online. And I think people would be very interested in this. Um, a little bit different than what I've done in the past, which is teaching and preaching, which I, I'll continue to do. But I thought it would be kind of neat to be able to talk about things that everybody's talking about, everybody's interested in, but don't have answers in. Because I have some ideas about what these UFOs are, and I do believe that they are celestial. I do believe they are uh, interdimensional. I do believe, and it's not my message tonight, I do believe that some people are actually seeing these. Some of it's hoax, some of it's just a bunch of nonsense. But we do, we have information from God's word that tells us that we can see into the unseen world at times and our eyes are open to things and there are angels that they can see angels that actually fly on things in the bible they record them as uh they record them as flaming or fiery chariots well that's what they would describe a mechanical thing if they didn't see it before something that was like it had fire or propulsion of some, some kind um and that angels, but also demons. So these gray creatures and the big eyes and the big heads, all that kind of stuff. Uh, they're, they're, I have never seen that, but I'm just saying, uh, I think p there's some people that really believe they've seen this. That could very well be demonic entities that have come into the world. And the more you give them that attention, the more and the fear of that uh, brings them on the scene even more. So, and I believe there's a clash coming, a clash of, of angels and demons coming to fight over our humankind. So I do believe people will see things. So I might even talk about that some other time, like do like a do a special broadcast just for that, some ideas and thoughts that I have. And but I do I do get fascinated by it, but I only get fascinated by it as it pertains to the word of God. And like Bigfoots, we all know Bigfoots are real. Everybody knows that Bigfoots are real, right? Everybody knows that, right? I mean, you've watched, this, you've watched the TV shows, right? The TV show, the Bigfoot, Finding Bigfoot. They've been out for five seasons. They never found one book, Bigfoot, not one. But they hear, and, and all, all, every time they do like the little, the little, um, 
cliffhangers, whatever. At the end, it's like they know, they, they hear noise and a, a knock, knock, and oh my God, it's, and they can never capture the Bigfoot, but they swear that they found the Bigfoot. I mean, in the, in the summer of 1924, uh, Kessel, um, Washington, according to the Sunday Oregonian, there are five miners that encountered what they call mountain devils in the wilds of uh, Mount St. Helens. One of the men, Fred Beck, shot one of the creatures and watched its body fall over uh, a precipice and into a canyon. That night, the, the devils, as they reported it, used large rocks to bombard the log cabin where the men were sleeping and, and uh, they were knocking chunks with the rocks out of the structure of that building, rendering one of the miners unconscious. According to the story, the animals were said to have appeared of, of huge, uh, to be huge gorillas, and they are covered with long black hair. Their ears are about four inches long and stick straight up. They have four toes, <laughs> uh, short and stubby, and the tracks are about 13 to 14 inches long. So that's where this whole Bigfoot phenomena came from, from that story. There's another woman named uh, Linda Lindell of Silver Lake, Washington. Linda is a volunteer interpreter um, at the Mount St. Helens Vol Volcanic Monument. About 15 years ago, Lindell was hunting in the vicinity of Mount St. Helens when she caught a whiff of an ungodly-like smell. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, and she said, oh, it gave me such chills, said Lindell. Once I got a smell of that odor, uh, you've never seen a woman run so fast in your life. Uh, he must have been only 30 yards from me. She said, honest, she added. It scared me half to death. People think you're stupid if you say you had an encounter with Bigfoot, but there's just too much evidence. I can just smell it now, she says. It was like rotting meat. This Bigfoot is definitely around, she said, and it's around to stay. Of course, there's been absolutely no evidence of it whatsoever. No bones have been found. It's never happened, but... Who knows, there could be a Bigfoot. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Loch Ness Monster. There's been over 3,000 sightings of, of Loch Ness. I'll be honest with you, that's another one of the things they get interested in because I just believe there's strange stuff in that water. I don't like to go in the water. Come on, somebody. I'll, I'll go on the beach, but I ain't getting in that water. Hallelujah. Why? Because there's stuff out there to get me, and I am not fast enough to get away from them. Come on, somebody say amen. I mean, come on, be honest about it. I, I, some of y'all are brave. You go in the water, not moi. I'm not doing that. And they go, they, 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 we went to the moon, but we had not researched all of the water yet. And there's creatures down there that they have found that are crazy. You can see through them. And, and they, they glow, and they got long teeth and big jaws and and yet they're so, like, they just have nothing to them. And yet we, don't, we can't even design ships. We can't design submarines to get down there because the pressure is so strong. Yet they just flow freely with no problem at all. Scary stuff. I saw Jaws. Come on, y'all. I didn't want to take a bath after I saw Jaws. That was so scary. I'm not kidding you, man. I wouldn't go in the pools, that's for sure. There's been over 3,000 sightings of Loch Ness. Loch Ness is the largest freshwater lake um, in Scot uh, Scotland. 1987, a sonar sc uh, scan swept. 19 boats traveled the lake in in inhabited by, by the famed water dinosaur um, to catch anything that made a sound. They found several large targets that couldn't be explained. Uh, including uh, one very large object at a very uh, deep part of the lake. The Loch Ness area brings in over $30 million a year from tourists. Guess what? They're going to make sure Loch Ness Monster stays alive right there, aren't they? 
with full-blown submarine rides for $100? I don't know. No, no, no. But they, they find stuff in there, and they think that's what it is, and they, they, they try to, they try to you know, theorize it away, and they say, no, it's really a monster. And, and it's just kind of, it's kind of crazy. All kinds of different close encounters. So let me ask you a question tonight. Are any of you, are any of you, um, uh, recognize any real encounters in your life? Because I want to talk about, I want to talk about real encounters. I'm not totally sure of the the Bigfoot theory or Loch Ness monster theory or UFOs. I'm not really sure about any of that. Never encountered any of that. But I do know of a really, really close encounter of the God kind that happened about 2,000 years ago and infected the entire world to where everybody knows his name. And that was God sending man to earth by the name of Jesus Christ. And he is from out of this world. He truly is. And he comes from God's world, from heaven, and came in the form as a, of a baby and walked as a man, but in fact was God-man. He was, in fact, all God as much as he was flesh and blood man. So tonight, I want to debunk or begin debunking some myths about the greatest encounter the world has ever known, being Jesus. And this is what I want to talk about for a few minutes tonight. Number one, the first myth is this, is that they say that Jesus never really existed. You'll find that a lot now. They used to never say stuff like that. But now that's become a topic of discussion. Atheists especially like to throw that up. But a lot of agnostic people who believe there may be a God, but not, not for sure, they're starting to bring it up as well. And you'll start to see this online quite a bit. So I wanted to arm you with a few things that I found that I thought was pretty cool. Uh, this is very important um, for us. I, I, look, we've got faith, right? So we believe, we know him. We have a relationship with him, so it's hard not to convince us because we know him. But I will tell you that if you're not careful and if you don't have more than what we call just faith, then somebody comes with facts and they can really rock your faith, to be honest with you. And I've seen Christians get rocked before because they didn't have quite the answers. And that's called apologetics. We didn't, apologetics doesn't mean to, to, to apologize. It means to, to be able to defend your faith with the facts from the word of God. And in this case, I want to do it uh, through some other means as well. Um, we have scriptural evidence. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, and this is the whole encompassing gospel. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, we know that to be Jesus, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. That's the total message of the gospel in one verse. 1 Timothy 3, 16. Then 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says this, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. So in other words, if Jesus did not exist, then he couldn't have went to the cross. And if he didn't go to the cross to die for my sin and yours, then he couldn't, have went, he couldn't have then went to the burial tomb and be resurrected and be seated at the right hand of the Father. In other words, we'd still be lost in our sin. That's why we thank God that Jesus came as a man, walked as a man, was tempted in all points like a demand, went all the way, watch this, finished out his destiny, his purpose at the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago, laid down his life. No man took his life, 
Y'all, did y'all catch that? Don't blame the Jews and don't blame the Romans. They, they only were following the plan of God. Their eyes were not, don't even blame, blame the Sanhedrin councils or the Pharisees, the, I'm talking about the religious, don't even blame them. Why? Because it was all the plan of God and Jesus knew who he was at the time of 12 years of age and knew what his purpose was and John the Baptist identifies him and said, you are the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. That was a stamp of approval from God and he had to walk his life out for the next three and a half years doing what God told him to do and go to the cross. How did he go to the cross? Like a lamb. Being led to the slaughter. The only difference is a lamb doesn't know it's going to die. Jesus knew he was going to die, but he kept his mouth quiet. And by the way, had he not kept his mouth quiet, he could have called on legions of angels to get him out of that scenario because he didn't want to suffer and die like that. But that was his purpose on planet Earth because he loved us that much. Thank you, Jesus, is exactly right. Thank you, Jesus. So if, if the Bible says, if, if Christ is not risen, your faith is done. And your sin is still there. And of course, this is what the Bible says, but let's use some additional sources to prove the existence of Jesus on planet Earth. By the way, did you know that the, um, the Encyclopedia uh, Britannica uh, uses over 20,000 words to describe Jesus? Now, they have to understand something about the encyclopedia, especially the Britannica. They do their research. They dig in and dig into the culture. They dig into what people have talked about, to writings, to historical facts. And they use over 20,000 words to describe Jesus. Not, that's not a religious book. That is a secular book. Guess who else spoke of Jesus? Aristotle talked about Jesus. Uh, Cicero talked of Jesus. Alexander the Great talked of Jesus. Julius Caesar talked of Jesus. Did you know Buddha talked about Jesus? Confucius talked about Jesus. How about this one? And this is a real big one. I knew for years, but maybe you didn't know it. Muhammad talked about Jesus in a very positive way. That's why you'll find out that a lot of Muslims today revere Jesus, but only revere him as a great man or great prophet, but certainly not divine and certainly not God. So, but they revere him because of the writings and teaching of Muhammad. So we see that beyond just our book, our holy book, others express about who he is. Tonight, I want to give you six historians and respected men near the time of Christ that were not Christ followers, yet they spoke of Jesus. Number one is a man named Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger. He was the governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor in 112 AD. He wrote to the Roman emperor, his name was Trajan, about the rapid spread of Christianity in his province. It became a problem for him. The pagan temples were being shut down. He didn't like that. The temple prostitutes were losing customers. Well, that's money. He didn't like that. So Pliny took the matter into his own hands and started to kill off Christians one by one. Then he began to kill them off in the masses. Men, women, and children, boys and girls. There were so many being put to death that he wondered if he should continue killing anyone who was discovered to be a Christian or if he should just, just kill certain ones, maybe the ones that had power. He explained that, that he had made the Christians bow down to the statues of Trajan, 
who was, in other words, their worshiper, those the Roman uh, worshipers of the emperor or of their gods. And he goes on to say that he also made them curse Christ, which is a genuine Christian, he said this, uh, he said, which a genuine Christian cannot be induced to do. But he found that he couldn't get many Christians to do it. He wanted to do it, but they wouldn't bow and they wouldn't curse the name of Jesus. In the same letter, he says to the people who were, being, uh, who were being tried, they affirmed, however, that the whole of their guilt or their error was that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verse a hymn to Christ as to a God and bound themselves to a solemn oath. Listen to this. They knew they were under the sword. They knew they were going to be killed. They bound themselves to a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, adultery, never to, fals to falsify their word, not to deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. That's why he wrote the letter to the emperor. They didn't do anything really wrong except not worship the emperor and not visit the prostitutes and pay the money they thought they should have. So the question was, he was asking, should he keep persecuting and killing the Christians for it or let them go? He had killed so many that his conscience became like, what have I done? I've killed so many Christians and they will not bow down. What does that prove to us? That proves to us that people would not give their lives they wouldn't give their lives for somebody who didn't exist, who's somebody who didn't change their life. They would not have the guts to be killed or thrown into prison unless what they had was so real until this man says, I don't know if I should continue doing this because they're not going to change. Number two is a man named Cornelius Tactus, and he's the greatest Roman historian of his time. He was also in the year 112. 112 AD, same time as Pliny. And he tells how Christians were made scapegoats by Nero by setting Rome on fire. The, the name Christians, he said, comes to them from Christ, who was executed in the region of Tiberias by the uh, uh, procre uh, pro procreator, uh, who was Pontius Pilate. And uh, he said they became a pernicious cult suppressed for a while, broke out afresh and spread not only through Judea, the source of the disease, I love that he calls Christianity the source of the disease, but in Rome itself where all the horrible and shameful things of the world collect and find a home. He absolutely writes, and he's writing to Rome like, like his predecessor was Pliny, and saying the words, he said, that the name comes from Christ who was executed by Tiberius through Pilate, Pontius Pilate. That's not somebody's writing for something they don't know. They're saying it as a fact and then calling Christianity a disease because it's spreading everywhere. <laughs> I love that. He also refers to Christianity in his lost book, um, The Histories, it's called, which was referred to by a later writer and gave an amazing piece of information. And he said that the Roman general T 
Titus hoped that by destroying the temple of Jerusalem in AD 70 to end both Judaism and Christianity on the theory that you cut the root and the plant would soon wither. We know by history that did not take place. And the more they tried to cut it down, the more it spread and grew. We, we know that in the book of Acts, that the more persecution they came under, more people that were martyred, the more the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel, spread further and further, and more miracles happened as a result. Number three is a man named Sutanus, and he was a court official and an analysis under Emperor Hadrian, 69 to 120 AD. And he writes, as the Jews were making constant disturbance at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from Rome. Again, we see that, that, that there's, a, there's a Luke making the reference of the same thing in Acts 18, 1 and 2. I don't think they told him to put it on the screen, but it says this, Claudius ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. So we see there's a correlation of the two stories and these first three that I just mentioned were all in official positions, all wrote about events just 30 years before they were born. So their positions gave them access to the best historical information. So yes, they wrote after the time of Christ, some of these did, but they were really close to the information at hand. First uh, uh, hand information, eyewitnesses, that kind of thing. Okay, Number four, in the British Museum is a remarkable letter from Mara Sarapian um, to his son, written in 70 AD, shortly after Jerusalem was destroyed. And he refers to the death of, of uh, Socrates and um, uh, Pythagoras and Jesus, these three men. And he wrote, what advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after this that their kingdom was abolished, God justly avenged Christ. So in other words, this man not being a Christian is saying, I'm putting it all together here, and as I study the information that I'm receiving from the people who follow Jesus, why would they ever, why would they ever put a good man to death unless he is the Messiah, which was prophesied about or foretold before that he would have to become a sacrifice? a blood sacrifice for the sin of Israel and the entire world. And he wrote uh, his writings again back in 70 AD. Well, 33 AD is when Jesus left planet Earth. So you're talking just a generation away. Uh, number five is Thallus. And Thallus was a Samaritan historian in 52 AD. And his writings are referred to by other writers and he wrote, attempting to give a natural explanation for the darkness which occurred at the crucifixion of Jesus. So what he's doing is um, he's studying what happened. Everybody in the region was talking about how the sky grew dark at 3 p.m. in the day when the sun should be going down around 8 or 9 o'clock at night. But it went completely dark while this man who they felt was unjustly murdered like a common criminal on a Roman cross, which was a torture device, and he's up there saying, Father, forgive them for what they do. And then he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he says that, it instantly becomes dark on earth. And so he's studying that, trying to get answers to that. And he wrote, he wrote this, and Thales tried to explain that the darkness was some sort of eclipse of the sun 
which would have been impossible with a full moon as it was at Passover when Jesus died. But he did not deny the existence of Jesus, but only tried to explain away the strange circumstances surrounding his death. Everybody was talking about how bizarre this was. Interesting that the circumstances of the death of Jesus were well known in Rome, enough to be included in, 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 uh, in the history of the world. Everybody recorded that were that day recorded about his death and recorded about how it was unique. It was like something never seen before. They didn't know how to put it in words. Um, number six, this is someone you might know. Uh, I've referred to him many times as I preach. Um, he's a Jewish a general that turned into a Roman historian, and his name is Flavius Josephus, and he was born in 37 AD. So he literally was there when Jesus was on the earth. And he records that he's seen Jesus from afar off. Uh, he records a little bit of what he looked like. Uh, we don't have a great description, we have a little bit of a description. And, um, and that he was um, a Jewish uh, uh, rabbi, that, that taught uh, excellently and that he had a huge following. But he was not a follower of Christ. And he set out to reestablish Jewish reputation. That was his goal, to reestablish Jewish reputation in the minds of the Romans. Um, you would think he would ignore what happened with Jesus because that only puts a big question mark into everything. But he didn't. He makes several references to Jesus in his writings called, the, you might, if you want to go online, you can look this up, The Antiquities of the Jews. Antiquities of the Jews, and he wrote it in A.D. 93. And this is what he wrote. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man. Guys, this is not Matthew, this is not Mark, this is not Luke, this is not John. This is not a follower of Jesus, this is not a Christian. He was a historian. Now there was about this time a man named Jesus, a wise man. If it be lawful to call him a man at all. For he was a doer of the wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when, now this is interesting, and when Pilate had condemned him to the cross at the instigation of our own leaders, those who had loved him from the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day, as the holy prophets had foretold and said many wonderful things about him and the race of Christians. So named from him, in other words, that was named after him, Christians, um, has not died out at this day, but continues on, Antiquities 18.33. So we have a man here, it's writing the history of Jesus as an eyewitness and then going into investigation mode, talking to the other witnesses and some of the disciples themselves and writing this down. He started off to make it as something that the Romans could see the Jewish lineage and how important the Jews are to Rome. And then he finds other things. And I, we can see here that he's actually contemplating himself. Could this be the Messiah? He's saying he was the Christ or the Messiah. He writes it down emphatically that he was. We don't know that he ever became a believer, but he knows that he does wonderful works. Many follow him who love him, and he does not deny Jesus. If that right there alone doesn't tell you of the existence of Jesus, I don't know what else can. 
People can say what they want. They get online. They say all kinds of crazy stuff just to prove a point. And then most people don't have to back it up. Just do a little research. On, same online. Go online and you'll find there's all kinds of th neat things. Um, then you have, uh, and I'm almost done here, but then you have a Jewish source called the Talmud. Most of you have heard the Talmud before. The Talmud consists of two separate books dealing with the Jewish law. And it was written during the period from 100 A.D. to 500 A.D. The Talmud speaks frequently of Jesus of Nazareth, calling him out as Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the Talmud does not speak friendly of Jesus of Nazareth because they see him as an insurrectionist, a troublemaker, uh, somebody who's deceiving the multitude to, to take them away from God they, that's how they saw him, but they at least recognized who he was, confirming uh, that not only did he exist, but he actually had his ministry here on earth. But they never disputed anything that Jesus did. Not one thing in Talmud disputes it, or does it dispute the status as a historical figure? So we can see, guys, not even using the Word of God, which is plenty of proofs that we could use with that in the Word of God, but we can see even other ancient writers depicted Jesus, who he was. Uh, Josephus, again, you can go online and check it out for yourself, but actually said that uh, he had blue eyes. That's pretty interesting. Blue eyes, blue eyed Jesus. Never thought about that before. He was Jew with blue eyes. Um, don't know if that's true or not. not. I wasn't there, so I don't know. And I haven't seen him yet, praise God, in the natural, but I, I, I have no, I wouldn't be able to dispute that. But in other words, he got that close. He didn't describe him to make everybody go, oh, he knows the Jesus Christ. He just described a person that he actually lived with at the same time in the same space. So that's a pretty powerful, powerful resolute to all of us to let us know he did in fact exist. Now I'm going to talk about, I, I, my deal tonight is I got so much to say and I'm trying to do it in a fast time. I'm, kind of getting, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I'm going to start talking about the proof of the resurrection. I'll get to that, I think, the third week. But when you, this is going to tie in really, really, really good with the proof that Jesus Christ not only was who he said he was, but there's proof that he rose from the dead just like he said he would. That he's no longer there. Somebody say amen. amen. Let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise tonight. Okay. Next week, I'll have a little more time because we had to do all the anointing and I'll slow it down a little bit more, but I think that was good for now. Go ahead and stand to your feet if you would. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. What a great night, Father God. Thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to the, this earth and going to the cross and giving your life for us. You really did exist. You really are real. And we, and we will give our life for you. That's how much we love you, Lord. Thank you for this, Lord God, for this Passover season as we approach a new day for all of us. Something special is happening. Something new is wanting to break forth in our lives. Isaiah says it, Lord, and we stake claim to it. That, that there's something new that's about to spring forth. Can you not discern it? That's what your word says. That you would make a way in the wilderness and rivers in a wasteland. Thank you, Jesus. It is a new season and a new day. And we receive all of it tonight. In Jesus' precious name, the church said amen, amen. and amen. God bless you. Have a great